Good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys again. It's always a privilege to be here at Paradise Springs. As Rich said, we've known each other for quite some time, and we have some form of an affinity together by a few different things. A, that grace is free, absolutely, without cost, no conditions attached, free. And we are all here grateful for that reason. But the other reason is, is our passion for the church. We love the church, we love the body of Christ, and we want nothing more than the body of Christ in local form, Paradise Springs, in national and global form, to continue the mission of Christ. That's why we're here, right? If it weren't for the Great Commission, there really would be no purpose for us to be around, right? It's the Great Commission that keeps us here, and so we both hold those two things very dear to our heart. For some of you that don't know me, um, I'll tell you a little bit about myself, at least recently, over the last couple of years, I've been trying to get back into shape. And after a long period of time of down, right, it's hard. I'm about to be 55. My mind tells me I'm 18. I still think like that. I really do. I don't know about you, but like I, I, I think I'm 18. And so it tells me I can do certain things, and then my body says, there's no way you could do those things. Oh, I know. It doesn't get any better. So in any case, I'm at the gym now somewhat regularly, and um, there are two things that have become my greatest friend uh, at the gym. Heat and cold. Everybody understand that? Like, in other words, you heat up, right? Get the, get the muscles moving, right? Work out. And then at the end, ice compression, right? Just to get the inflammation down. Both of those things are invaluable to me in the last several years. I want to share with you a passage this morning. And if you were here the last time I was here, which was almost a year ago, I think, what we did is we looked at the seven letters of the seven churches that Jesus wrote in Revelation 2 and 3. And we looked at the first church, which was the church at Ephesus. Today, I thought we'd look at the last church. And Laodicea, which is the last church, Jesus actually, thanks, Rich, Jesus actually gives them a chastisement centering around, I'd rather you be cold or hot, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. By the way, we'll probably get to there when we get to that part of, of, of the text. That word vomit is vomit. Throw up. And, and, and I know that sounds ridiculous because some translations have tried to water it down, spew you, spit you out of my mouth. You know, the Greek word for that is vomit you out of my mouth. Now, remember, these are believers. These are born again believers in the church at Laodicea. But something went terribly wrong by the, between when they were formed and now when Jesus is chastising them in Revelation chapter 3. So if you can, turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 14, and it goes through 22. I'm hoping that this new form of technology will be friendly to me, because this is new to me, um, and I'm hoping it will be. I, I gave you a little bit of a map, just a quick one. I mean, obviously, more detailed maps out there, but to show you that the seven letters to the seven churches, right? Revelation 2 and 3. So by the way, we're going to cover the one today, the seventh, and we're going to do that at a relatively quick pace. 
but I'm hoping that it encourages you to look at those other letters. Look at the letter to Ephesus, right? Look at to the letter of uh, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, or Philadelphia. Look at these letters. I think it's so important, as I was telling Rich, you know, I think it's Revelation 2 and 3 is maybe the most overlooked section of the New Testament. Jesus writes seven letters to seven real first century churches. You think maybe if we studied them a little bit, maybe we'd learn a thing or two about what he wants from the church. I don't know. Just I'm not a genius. I just figured it might be a good place to start. So here's our, our map. If you notice, you'll see the seven churches in red. You'll also see in white, and I don't know if every one of you see, does everybody see those, the, the, the city of Heropolis in Colossae? They're like little white circles. They're really close to Laodicea, right? Um, Heropolis is about six miles uh, to, the, uh, to the northeast of Laodicea, and Colossae is about 10 miles south of it. Um, and so these two cities are neighboring cities for Laodicea. In fact, uh, in ancient times, they were very much considered the tri-city area, right? Because these cities were close to each other. And not only were they close to each other, but they were pretty, um, they, they, they were pretty unique in the fact that Laodicea was one of the richest cities. In fact, they had a ton of rich people. It was a city that you would think like the Bill Gates of the world would live in, okay? So, um, I don't know, Scottsdale, Beverly Hills, wherever you, you know, might want to imagine it in today. But in Laodicea, that's where they would be. Heavily dependent on banking system, heavily dependent on their textile trade. They used to make this black wool. Uh, so heavily dependent on that. And they were the medicine capital of the world at the time, right? Especially when it came to ophthalmology, eyeglasses. They were the center for the eye school the area, like they knew their stuff about eyes. I'm telling you all this because I think it's so important when you're studying each of these letters on your own, that you do a little bit of research and a little look into the city itself and see what was going on there. It'd be like 2,000 years from now, right? They're writing a letter to Phoenix, right? Uh, the people 2,000 years from now on the other side of the world might want to do a little history lesson on what Phoenix looked like. Same thing holds true here. We have to do that research and find out a little bit about them so that we understand, you know, what Jesus is talking about here. Because it might, from first glance, just look like, what is he talking about, right? But I think if you know a little bit of the history, you'll, uh, you'll be able to get it better. The other thing I want to mention before we actually hit the text today is the structure of each of these letters. When you're studying these letters, you're going to see there's a distinct structure to each one of them. Each one of them follow this pattern. They open up with the city that they're addressed to. So I'll give you an example. In our text today, it'll say, um, you know, to the, to the church of Laodicea, right? Write these things, right? So it's always this opening up to the city or the church, Ephesus, right? Smyrna, Pergamum. Each one has that same exact format doesn't doesn't veer the next thing you'll see is, is a description of christ christ gives a description of himself that's specifically pertinent to that individual city right he's doing it so that they remember quality about him and by the way uh, if you read chapter one right you'll see that john the the author of revelation 
And Jesus is using terms right out of Revelation chapter one. So like in our case today, if you look at chapter one of Revelation, you'll see in verses five and six, you'll see it says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So when we're looking at Laodicea, take a look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. These things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So Jesus is using a title that would be specific to the church at Laodicea, but he's pulling out of chapter one. By the way, the rest of those books, uh, the rest of those letters, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, all the rest, same type of deal. You'll predominantly see verses nine through 20 stacked with these titles that Jesus is pulling from to describe himself to that particular church. By the way, you might hear me say that particular church a lot because I don't want us to ever forget that Jesus is writing first and foremost to that particular church in the first century in that locale. He's not writing to you and me in 2023 in America. Just not. Can we extract application? Absolutely all day long. But we must never forget that the passage is not being written to us, being written to them, right? That's sometimes we think that that's a given, but when we're doing our Bible study, we get lost in it. And all of a sudden, Jesus is talking to me. Well, you know, he may be right, but not in the text. Okay. So in any case, you have a structure of a letter. You have the city of the church. You have Christ's description. You also have Jesus giving typically a commendation to each one of the churches, basically an attaboy, right? In other words, he's saying, hey, I really like what you guys are doing. Right? And he gives him a pat on the back. He follows up with a condemnation. Here's what you're missing. Now, if you guys remember when I did Ephesus about a year ago, we talked about that, right? In other words, Ephesus was doing a lot of good things, right? But what was what were they laughing? Anybody remember? First love. I don't even think you guys were here. So good for you. Uh, but in any case, first, right? They lost their first love, right? Well, he so he normally does that, right? So he's got this commendation, you're doing good. Condemnation, here's where you blew it. Then he gives counsel, right? Repent. Change your mind about the way you're doing things, right? Reverse course, do differently. And then, of course, he finishes with this idea of a challenge and a reward for those that adhere to it and those that accept the challenge and overcome. And we're going to look at that word overcome um, in a little bit. So that's kind of the, the backdrop to this whole thing. I hate to just drop us into Revelation 14 without giving some sort of context to where it is. It's in this section of letters. So let's read together, if we can, the passage here. I'll read it for sake of time. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, by the way, I'm using the New King James Version. So if you're using a different version, you may see a little bit of discrepancy, but it's pretty much similar. These things say the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. We looked at that, right, in chapter one, where he's extracting that. 
By the way, this next phrase is in every one of these seven letters. He says, I know your works. Think about that for a minute. So each one of these letters is writing to Christians, not about their salvation. Salvation's not on the table in any of these letters. It's a judgment about their behavior. I know your work. That you're neither cold or hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I mean, what a strong, in fact, that word's only mentioned one time in the entire New Testament, by the way. Such a strong word, right? Because you say I'm rich, I've become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you're actually wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed and the shame of your nakedness might not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Some of you might know this verse by heart. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I want you to start thinking, right? Keep your minds engaged. Look at some observations. What's the text saying? Remember, an observation is not what does it mean. We don't want to go there quickly. We want to say, what does the text say? One of the things I want to point out, just like I pointed out in verse 15, the I know your works is consistent in all seven letters. The last part is also consistent in, in all seven letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, there's been much dispute about, you know, how did these churches apply to us or how did they apply to the first century? I mean, obviously, I think we all recognize that there were more than seven churches in the first century, right? And that there's a lot of churches that are left out of this list that Jesus is writing to. I mean, the church at Rome and Galatia and Thessalonians were left out. I mean, all these churches that are currently existing are left out. So some people wonder, why these seven? Now, I can give you the arguments on both sides of how people see this. I believe that Jesus picks these seven because these seven churches represent an example of what churches will encounter for all time. So when you're reading this, there's application for all time. By the way, there's also application in the letter to Laodicea to the Ephesians. Do you see what he says here? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. By the way, that's another good observation when you're reading the text. Is it singular? Or is it plural? Okay? He's, he wants all the churches to have their listening ears on. This is important. Ears up. Because we can easily make the mistake and say, well, those stupid Laodiceans, right? But not us. That's their problem. No? Listen. Have your ears on. This is important for all churches for all time. And so that's how I see that. Now let's take a look at the text. 
Verse 14, where it starts off, it says, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write. Again, another word that is often, I think, debated uh, among scholars. Some would hold that angel actually is a, the human messenger or the elder of the church or the pastor of the church, which on the surface to me kind of makes sense, right? In other words, Hey, you know, Jesus is telling John, who put these words to paper and make sure that the elder or the pastor of the church gets it and reads it to the congregation and passes it along. The problem I have with that view, which is why I hold to the second view, right? The spiritual being view, is that every single time the word angelos, which is the word, the Greek word for angels in, in, the, uh, in the text, every time it's used, it's used 69 times in Revelation. And bar none, it's always referring to a spiritual being. Not one ex exemption to that list. Unless, of course, you take the human messenger side and you say, well, there is. There's seven exemptions. And here they are. Well, that, I mean, you could do that. But I find it very compelling that in a word study, not one time is it mentioned. The other reasons that I think that it probably, in my opinion, leans to spiritual being is Jewish and early Christian writing almost exclusively use angelos to refer to spiritual being and not to messenger. And the third, and to me, I think one of the most important because it's in scripture, and I don't want to take too much time on it, but if you go to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, the writer of Hebrews actually tells us that one of the angels responsibility is to minister or serve those who will inherit salvation. So it seems like there is a, uh, a job description that certainly would apply to them being a, in service of the church and in service to those who are believers in service of those who are going to overcome and inherit uh, alongside of King Jesus. So for those three reasons, I lean to the spiritual being now, believe me, there's, I, I get the argument on the other side. Uh, I would love to debate that, but for sake of time, we can't. Um, but there is another side. Either way, if you come from the tradition or you, in your own study, you say, hey, I think it's human messenger, Sam. I think you're out of your mind. That's fine. It doesn't really change the text at all. It doesn't change anything that Jesus writes. It's just kind of one of those things where we can agree to disagree. But I did want to bring it up to you because I think that that's often asked. In fact, some of your... your um, Translations may even say messenger instead of angel. Maybe they've translated it to messenger because they don't want to hold to the angel word. Um, but that's basically the deal with that. All right, let's take a look at the next few verses. Any questions on that? I always want to, by the way, don't feel afraid to raise your hand. We can talk about something. I, I'm open to that. You don't have to just listen to me. Any questions so far on, on that? No, okay. Christ's title. Let's take a look at verse, uh, the rest of 14, right? We have the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Like I said, I think he's pulling right out of Revelation um, 1, 5 through 6. But this, this phrase, the amen, amen simply means, so let it be. This is true. This is a true statement. In other words, Jesus is equating himself with the amen, the ultimate in truth. In other words, everything I'm about to tell you is true. This is true. I am the truth, right? 
You remember John 17, 17, I got listed there, right? Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Well, in Isaiah 65, 16, I think the same thing applies. In fact, it's almost kind of neat. If you look at Isaiah 65, or just if you don't want to look at it, it's fine. Um, I don't think I have, no, I didn't include a, uh, a slide on that. But 60, I'll, I'll read it quickly. Isaiah 65, 16 says, so that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. Literally in the Hebrew, the God of amen. And he who swears it in the earth shall swear by the God of amen. Because the former troubles are forgotten because they are hidden from my eyes. One of the most interesting things I find about this phrase, these things says the amen. What a statement of deity. Right? Jesus is actually saying, Isaiah 65, me. I mean, so you want to talk about uh, another tool in your tool belt if you ever talk to somebody who doesn't quite see Jesus as being God. Uh, and some, you know, they went through great levels to change their translations. I'm not mentioning any cults out there, but, you know, that went through great lengths to trade. You can get them here. This is, a, this is one of the areas they haven't changed yet. And Jesus is associating himself with the God of Isaiah 65, who is none other than Yahweh himself. So Jesus says, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning, by the way, faithful and true witness, I think, explains the amen, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, the term there for beginning is this term called arche, and it can be used in several different um, understandings. The origin of something, the originator of something, or a rulership aspect. Now, scholars just, you know, have arguments over what is it, what is Jesus trying to communicate here? Well, again, because of time, I can't argue all the sides, but I'll tell you where I land. I think it's the rulership view. In other words, I think Jesus is saying, I am the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the ruler of the creation of God. I'm not just the originator. In other words, he is that, right? In other words, all things came through him, Colossians 1 says. So we know that, but he's saying, I have preeminence over everything. I rule it all. And so what I have to say is the only say that counts. So I feel like R.K. here really blends to a more rulership. Does anybody have a translation that uses rulership? Anybody with the NIV here? No. NIV uses it. There's a se several other translations that will actually translate it rule uh, of the creation of God. And I think they're right on that, um, I, especially because of the text itself. I think if you look again, just turn a few pages over in your Bible. Uh, to chapter one, verse five, you know, in that whole list that we just mentioned, right? One of those lines is, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. So there's rulership mentioned right in chapter one. I also think it comes in uh, to play is the very end of the letter itself is what? To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I've sat with my father on his throne. So rulership is the context of this. So I, I, I hold to the fact that RK, uh, in, at least in this text, uh, means a rulership or is better connotated as rulership. All right, let's take a look at the rest of the text if we can. I want to try to move along fast. I know we have communion today and I don't want to jip that off because that's more important than anything I can ever tell you. All right. Um, I know your works. 
you're neither hot or cold. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Again, there's, there's two interpretive views here. Now, again, I don't have the time to go through each one, so I'm just going to kind of give you mine. Uh, and you can take it for what it's worth. Maybe it stirs you up to study a little more. Try to prove me wrong. That's fine as well, as long as you're studying, right? Uh, view one would be the spiritual fervor or the commitment to Christ in his gospel view. What I mean by that is, is some old commentators used to look at this passage and say, Jesus is really upset at the Laodiceans because um, of their lukewarm desire for him, uh, desire for uh, the gospel that they drew kind of just kept out. Um, that's, that's view one. The problem, though, that I have with this view, and, and probably the biggest problem is Jesus is saying he would prefer lukewarm to cold. That doesn't make much sense, does it, right? In other words, wouldn't Jesus rather us be at least lukewarm, not cold and antagonistic against him? Right? He doesn't want a church that doesn't believe in him and is cold. He'd rather have a lukewarm church, I would think. So I don't think that that quite fits the explanation. I think the best view to understand here is the usefulness or effective view. I think what Jesus is trying to communicate to the Laodiceans is you have become good for nothing. Yes, you believe in me. You sing songs. You do all the show. That's great. But you have become useless. The Great Commission got left behind somewhere. You are useless and ineffective. I think that's how you have to see this passage because to see it as they the other way, to, to me, goes against the grain of the text. So he says, I know your works. You're neither cold or hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. And like I said, that word vomit's a very strong one, only mentioned once. Here's the problem. Right? They're lukewarm. They're self-sufficient. They're wretched, they're miserable, they're poor, they're blind, and they're naked. Look at what the text says here. Verse 17, because you say, I am rich, I've become wealthy, and have need for nothing. By the way, there's a stylish thing going on here. You first start with need of nothing, and then wealth, and then rich. He goes in a backwards order, which is a normal stylistic thing that you see here. So then, because you are Luke, uh, because... Uh, you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need for nothing, but don't really realize that you're wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So again, going back to what we said before, Laodicea, the capital of the Bill Gates, they were flush with money. They had tons of it. They had great industry. Like I said, capital of the ophthalmologist world, right? World textile industry. These guys had money. In fact, so much so that even if you look at history, Laodicea had an earthquake in back in AD 60, right? Major earthquake. Now, normally, when major earthquakes happen and cities got kind of ruined and flattened, similar to our day, right? The president, right? In this case, the Roman emperor would issue a state of emergency, right? 
and funnel all sorts of funds to fix, right? Think about Hurricane Katrina, all these devastating things that have happened to our country, right? The federal government pushed money in. So Rome would typically push some money in to rebuild these Roman provinces. Laodicea was so rich, they said, no, thank you. We don't need you. We got this. And rebuilt the city by themselves. And that's like that 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 flowed throughout history. And so by this time in AD, you know, that was AD 60. By this time, when John's writing this, you know, in the early 90s, there's this air about Laodicea. They're the Beverly, they're the Scottsdale. Oh, look at those guys, you know, they got money, right? This is how everybody thought. So they would understand that Jesus is really pushing in on them. You say you're rich, you become wealthy, you need nothing. You're self-sufficient. You don't really realize that you're wretched, you're miserable. You're poor, blind, and naked. I don't know if there's another letter that probably is so um, connected with the 21st century Western church than the letter to Laodicea. Our churches... And I'm not just talking about the mega churches out there with billion dollar budgets. Them, for sure. All of our churches, us, right here. Are we depending on God? Or do we think we got it because of who we are as Americans and who we are because we all have money? Now, you may be sitting there saying, Sam, I don't know what world you live in. I don't have that much money. I'm just kind of middle class. Let me explain something to you. When it comes to a global perspective, I'm not talking about comparing yourselves with the people in Scottsdale or, or in Beverly. I'm, not, I'm talking about from a global perspective. Each one of us is extremely wealthy. We are the rich. Now, by the way, not a bad thing. Not a bad thing to be rich. I'm not telling you that that's not good. What I'm telling you is when you depend on that and not God, that's bad. Because your riches will only go so far. And Jesus knows that. That's, that's just temporal. No matter how much money you have, that's temporal. And if your heart is based on that, then you've gone astray. By the way, I'm not pointing at you. I'm pointing at me right now. I bought into the whole American thing, right? Move up, get a good house, car, vacation, all this thing, 401k. Got to make sure that I hit that mark. Retirement. I got. By the way, again, not in and of itself bad. But when that started to impact me, where I was like, I don't need a job. I don't need to do this. I don't need, I, I got it all. I, I'm good. I don't need to do this. And being prideful about that, that's not good. But Jesus is talking to me. And I would suppose, like I said, the 21st century Western church couldn't be more aligned with that type of thinking. So he says, here's the remedy. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may be rich, white garments that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye set that you may see. Get this, right? They thought that they were rich. Jesus says, you're actually poor. Buy from me. That's a key phrase, by the way. Buy from me. I'm the only one that sells this. All your money can't buy. You can't go to Walmart and get this. Buy from me 
refine gold so that you will be actually rich. See, Jesus wants each one of us to be rich, but not the this rich, not this, not, not the American rich, the eternal rich. There's a difference. He's not against you being rich, but he wants you to get it where it counts, where it'll last forever, not where it's temporary. For the one who's naked, which again, he, he, he considers them poor, naked, and blind. For the one who's naked, buy from me white garments. By the way, white garments, if you look at the end of Revelation chapter 19, talks about white garments being the righteous acts of the saints. He wants them to do righteous acts, not just acts. I'm afraid our churches, we do a lot of acts. We do a lot of programs. We do a lot of stuff. But are they righteous acts? So Revelation 19 says the white garments are the righteous acts of the saints, not just the acts of the saints. He says, but you can buy that from me. You tune into me, you plug into me, you can get the righteous acts of the saints where your motives are right. Think about the writer of Hebrews, right? The word of God is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That blows me away every time because sometimes people can look at me going to different churches and coming up here and say, wow, what a great act. But if you only knew at times my thoughts and my dismay of driving, and uh, uh, that's not righteous acts. You understand? That's on me. And then he says, buy from me. And anoint your eyes with Isaiah. So these are all three things. Think about Laodicea. Banking industry, gold. Textile industry, garments, clothing. I but See, they would have got it. Like, we might be looking at it from our 2023 American eyes and be like, I don't know. What does all this even mean? They get it. You're attacking our top three things. Because we're relying on us and not you. Anoint your eyes with eyes said that you may see. I often think of the verse where, you know, the passage where Jesus takes the dirt and spits on it and cures the Like, he's the guy that can give you real sight. In that particular case, that guy got physical sight and spiritual sight. But for those of us that have physical sight, like, we could really have sight if we took plug into him. And that's huge. And so here's the, here's the, here's, here it is. Here's the criticism. You're poor, blind, naked, but instead by refined gold from me, by white garments from me, and by ISAF from me. Two verses I want to, and again, I put them on the screen so we didn't have to waste the time fumbling through the Bibles. First Timothy 6, 17 through 19 says, and Paul is writing to Timothy in First Timothy, just to give you a little bit of a background. Command those who are rich in this present age, by the way, I, wa I want us to all of all of us, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, prideful, like, ah, I, I don't have to worry about tomorrow's food. I just go to McDonald's. I got money. I got, I'm flush. Not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come 
that they may lay hold on eternal life. And that phrase, lay hold on eternal life, doesn't mean they can get eternal life because we have that already. Timothy had that already. But there's a difference between getting eternal life and possessing it. And he's talking about the latter. Matthew 6, 19 through 21, most of you know this verse. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. That's Jesus's words, right? In the Sermon on the Mount. Let's take a look at the text. Go to verse 19. And this blows me away. By the way, do you remember when I said each letter has this format to it, right? And it has commendation and condemnation, right? I don't know if you noticed. What's missing in the Church of Laodicea? I mean, a lot, but like in that text, there's no attaboy. There's no commendation. This is the only letter where Jesus doesn't even give anything to them. He doesn't say, at least your programs look nice. He don't even give them that. It's the only letter that is absent from a commendation. But take a look at verse 19. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Repent zealously. In other words, make repent. Make your change of your mind and what you're doing so active that you can't think of anything else but to, to, turn this, to turn this ship around. Be zealous and repent. Isn't it amazing? Here's a church that he gives no props to. And it's the only church, by the way, out of the seven, that he actually explicitly says, I love you. I mean, you want to talk about grace? <laughs> You want to talk about God with grace? Here's the most screwed up church out of the bunch. I mean, they all have their problems, but this is it. And he says, I love you. And as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. It's like a kid, right? When you, when you love your kid and they're going so astray, and, you know, when they're young enough and you spank them, you're not spanking them to hurt you're spanking them because, oh, God, I love you and I don't want you to do this anymore. It's not good for you. That's, that's the Lord with us. Look at Hebrews 12, 5 through 6. It's just, a, again, a correlation passage. The writer of Hebrews again says, and, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My sons or daughters, by the way. I'm not leaving you guys out. That, that just means you guys, right? The sons and daughters. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And he scourges every son whom he receives. So salvation was not a problem for the Laodiceans. Being believers was not a problem for them. They were just useless. They became useless. They, been, they became so entrapped in the world they lived in and so proud of everything they accomplished. And they went from not needing anything to wealthy to now rich. Rich so much that they could tell, literally tell their government Churchill. But you get what I'm saying. I'm not taking your money. We got it. Man. All right. Let's wrap this thing up. Revelation 3.20. Some of you probably have this verse memorized. 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. Many, many people, I think, through the ages have used this verse. Maybe effectively, maybe not. That's the jury's out on that, but certainly not in context, right? In other words, we've used this verse as an evangelistic verse, and it's really not. Jesus is talking to the saved ones already. He's talking to the church at Laodicea. He's, he's talking right here, this. And he's saying, behold, look, gaze at this. I stand at the door and knock. Anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and dine with him. That, uh, the understanding of dining with him is this idea of fellowship, right? Jesus has fellowship with people. He eats with them. Eating, is, especially in the first century, is one of the biggest displays of love and community and fellowship. And he says, if you're willing to, I'll come in and do that with you. If, you, if you're zealous and repent, I'm at the door. I'm ready. I'm ready to come in. Isn't it a shame that he was out in the first place? But he was. Jesus left the building, and they were just on autopilot. And by the way, again, it's not an attack against the mega church in the United States. This is an attack on really pretty much all of our churches. Like, are we on autopilot? I mean, if you got some guy that can come up here and talk for 30 or 40 minutes, and you got a guitar player, and you got a sound guy, and you got, we can kind of do this on our own, and we don't really need Jesus, right? I hope not. But unfortunately, I think we act like that sometimes. You have to be zealous and repent. In the last two verses, some of my favorites, he addresses the people in the church. And again, there's different sides of view on who the overcomers are. If you read commentaries, they may say it's the whole church. I don't believe that. I believe that these are to individuals. In other words, the whole church are Christians. They're all believers. They're all going to heaven. But to the one in the church, or to the ones in the church, I don't want to say that necessarily there's one or five hundred. I mean, to the people in the church who overcome. By the way, that word "nikeo" is where we get the, uh, the the company Nike. Right, it means victorious one, right? Overcomer, overcome, victor victory. Right, they built a brand over this idea of wear our stuff and you will overcome and you sport obstacle or whatever that you, you're, you're facing. That's the term Nike. It's this term Nikeo in the Greek. It says, to him who overcomes or to the one who overcomes, I will go in to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So to the one who zealously repents and overcomes, Jesus will grant them to be co-rulers with him in his coming kingdom. Just like he overcame. By the way, Jesus didn't overcome just because of who he was. Jesus overcame because he got the job done. Am I wrong? I mean, don't get me wrong. Jesus, holy God, he is worthy of our praise unconditionally. But he didn't overcome because of who he was. He overcame because he got the job done. He came and lived a sinless life for me and you. He went and he, the, the writer of Philippians says this in chapter two, right? Humbling himself to the point of death, even a death of a cross, he became like a slave. Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, ruler of all creation, became a slave for the, the humanity that put him on the cross. 
He got the job done. Because he got the job done, he now sits at the Father's right hand in rulership. And Jesus says that there's coming a day I'm coming back and I'm setting up my throne in Jerusalem, the Davidic throne. And you are invited if you overcome. But if you don't, you're done. It doesn't mean you're not going ahead. It doesn't mean you're not part of the kingdom. It means you don't get the reward. Each one of these letters, go through each one of them these weeks. You'll see this end part. To the one who overcomes, I will grant X, Y, and Z. Every letter is different. But in this one, he's saying, I'll give you the right to rule. Put a little picture here. It's a coin back in, um, just actually right prior to uh, Jesus being born on Caesar Augustus. Do you see on the right side? This is on the back side of the coin. This throne that has two seats. That's what he's talking about. They would have known this, right? We don't think of it. It's not two different thrones. It's a throne with a side rule. So in other words, Caesar Augustus had his best friend memorialized on a coin where he was ruling with him. Jesus says the same thing for, for his kingdom. One of my favorite quotes by a author that I've been highly influenced by over the years, Watchman Nee, says, he in time gets nearest to Christ crucified, will in eternity get nearest to Christ glorified. Indifference to Christ here cannot lead to intimacy there. Christ's future attitude towards men will be determined by men's present attitude towards him. Right now counts forever. Make no mistake about it. Your life matters forever. What you do here will reflect what your life will be there. Now, again, want to make sure I'm clear on this. Everyone and anyone who puts their trust in Christ alone for eternal life gets eternal life, period. That's column A. But there's a column B for those of us that have put our faith and trust in Christ and him alone for eternal life. He offers us something else. He offers us the abundant life. He offers us a life to lay hold of eternal life. He offers us a life of rulership and reign. He offers us a life of reward in the coming kingdom. But that's not free and unconditional. That means you have to actually give up your life for him. Everything's got to be about him. Only those that do that will get that, the reward. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, thanks for this morning. Thanks for giving us the time to go over your word. Lord, I thank you for these seven letters particularly. And I thank you for the people that translated and transmitted these through the ages that we can sit here in 2023, open up your word and know your truth for the church. Lord, we have so many church models and 10-step programs of how the church should run. And Lord, you all wrote it in two chapters, two and three. I pray that we would take these chapters more seriously, that we would dig into your word, that we would understand what you would want for our church. Lord, this is really your church. We steward it. We want to stand before you one day 
and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And we cannot rely on ourselves for that. We need to rely on you. So Lord, please, I pray that your Holy Spirit encourages us, equips us, exhorts us to buy from you the things that we need to hear those words when we stand before you. Be with us the rest of this service. May you be honored and glorified by our time together in worshiping you through communion and remembering the sacrifice you made on our behalf. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.